listening to the Carleton Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Me, one of the PhD students with the program. So this past December, the UN High Commission for Refugees held its first Global Refugee Forum, a massive global meeting in Geneva featuring policymakers and civil society actors from around the world. The meeting sought to take the blueprint created by the UN's Global Compact on Refugees and turn it into action, resulting in the announcement of nearly 800 pledges across a variety of policy fields related to the plight faced by migrating bodies around the world. And here at Carleton, we're fortunate enough not just to have someone who is there, but someone who's here willing to talk to us today about it. That's Professor James Milner. Professor Milner is an associate professor with the Department of Political Science, specializing in migration, peacebuilding, and global governance. He's also the project director of the Local Engagement Refugee Research Network, a major collaborative research project with academics and civil society organizations from around the world. Not only has he attended scores of international conferences like this, but Professor Milner has also worked as a consultant for the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and written his fair share and probably other people's fair share of books and articles along the way. James, thanks for joining us. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for your interest in this story. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, so the Global Forum just recently wrapped up, and you were there in attendance. There have been a myriad of conferences over the years about refugees and the plight of migrants. What made this past December's Forum in Geneva different? Oh, that's a good place to start. Um, so on the one hand, it was a lot of the same. You know, same, same, but different. So what was the same? The same was that hundreds, in this case, thousands of partners from different UN member states, UN agencies, uh, NGOs, civil society actors, that they came together, each with their own agenda, right? Everyone was trying to get something different out of the meeting. There was the framing around a year since the Global Compact on Refugees had been adopted. And so there was a sense of occasion. There was also a sense of opportunity that all of a sudden space on the agenda was being shared. So it wasn't just UN member states who were able to make pledges, but it was the private sector and others. So what made this different? I think what made it different is that there was a sense of opportunity. There was a sense that with the new Global Compact on Refugees that had been affirmed by 170 UN member states, there was an opportunity to build from that political endorsement to see how that could be translated into practice, one. Number two, that there was sort of a dark cloud over the meeting in that there was a sense that the political consensus around a rules-based international order was at risk of being eroded. So there was a sense of urgency of being able to prove that these jamborees are, are worthwhile. And then number three, I think what made it different uh, was what, what counted as participation. Right? that it wasn't just states coming in offering money or resettlement places, that it was uh, private sectors offering employment opportunities for refugees. So on the one hand, it was very familiar in terms of the, the mechanics of it and, and the sort of the pantomime of it. But there was a sense of urgency, there was a sense of opportunity, and there was a sense of different voices that were present within the meeting. So one of the goals of this conference was something you just mentioned, which is the idea of inclusion, mm. actively promoting different organizations, particularly involving refugees in the policymaking process. For you, what's more inclusive policymaking look like, and was this form actually successful in doing so? Right. So what does inclusive policy look like? I think it's not so much what the policy looks like, but what does the process look like? The experience of the Global Refugee Forum has its origins in events of 2015, right? When there were more than a million people seeking asylum within Europe and it just overwhelmed 
the consensus within Europe and it overwhelmed the institutions that were in place to respond. And the reason I mention that is because what happened next was presented as an inclusive process that UN member states called for action. There was a report from the Secretary General. There was the negotiation of the New York Declaration. And the presumption was that this process was made inclusive because when UN member states gathered at the UN General Assembly in September of 2016 to debate the, uh, the, New York, the text of the New York Declaration, you know, that a refugee and a migrant were invited to address the UN General Assembly um, to sort of give the perspective of refugees and migrants. And this was, you know, seen, this was revolutionary. Um, and so uh, the, the, the refugee, uh, Mohammed Badrin, who it was invited to, to come and address the UN General Assembly, uh, he was, you know, very passionate about the need for refugee voices and refugee experience to be present in every stage of the making of policy, the, the, the adopting of policy, the implementation of policy, and the evaluation of policy. And he left this, the, the podium and, and said to, to one of the advisors of the process, you know, do you think my statement made a difference? And the answer was no, it makes no difference because the text of the agreement was negotiated over the summer and sent to translation. You were just here to, to, to set up the, the formalities. So what does inclusive process looks like? It's not bringing the subjects of policy in at the final stage to legitimize what has been negotiated by other actors. The, the challenge of inclusive policy is those who are affected by the policy are consulted right at the beginning when the agenda is being set in terms of whether or not this is a policy problem that we're going to put on the agenda of the refugee regime. So something that we're working on, you mentioned in, in your intro, the Local Engagement Refugee Research Network, this partnership of Canadian universities, of working groups in Kenya, Tanzania, Lebanon, and Jordan, with an advisory group that includes refugees, that refugees are present when we decide what is our research going to be, what are our topics going to be, what are our activities, how are we allocating our money, that refugees are included right at the beginning, that it's not just we've decided the work that we're going to do and we bring refugees to help us do the work that we've decided is important. So what does inclusive policy looks like? It, it, it's, it's where refugees are involved in the process of identifying what are the priorities that need to be addressed. They're involved in bringing the options to the table of what are the alternatives that can be considered, that they have a say in actually endorsing which policy option is going to be most effective, is going to be most legitimate in the eyes of refugees, that they play a role in implementing that policy, they play a role in evaluating that policy, and they play a role in, in reforming that policy. So did that happen in Geneva? No. What happened in Geneva, there were 3,000 participants, 70 of whom were refugees. That means that 2% of the participants at the Global Refugee Forum were refugees. If the UN hosted a conference on indigenous rights or on women's rights, and if 2% of the participants were from an indigenous background or were women, it would be seen as an Ill illegitimate gathering. So on the one hand, you can look at what happened at the Global Refugee Forum and say it was not inclusive. But I'm more of a glass half full kind of guy. I would say that there were two things that happened that were potentially transformative. Number one, Canada took the lead, broke the mold. The Canadian delegation had a refugee advisor 
as a member of the delegation. Mustafa Alio, the co-founder of Jumpstart Refugee Talent in Toronto, was asked to be an advisor to the Canadian delegation, which had never happened before. So it creates a precedent that other states can follow. But there was also a very clear political message when Canada's Minister of Immigration, Marco Mendicino, gave the plenary statement on behalf of the government of Canada, who was sitting right next to him, but Mustafa Alio, that at the number two seat for the delegation in the assembly hall, that seat was occupied by someone who was on the delegation specifically as a refugee. And in the statement, Minister Mendicino said, who better knows the challenges and opportunities of the refugee experience than refugees themselves? And that he was very proud to have a refugee advisor. And then he said those critical words, words you know, Mustafa, welcome to your seat at the table. So that now creates the opportunity when we have the next global meeting on refugees, UNHCR's executive committee meeting in October of uh, 2020. Our goal is to have 10 countries with refu refugee representatives as part of their delegation. So that's one thing that happened is that a new opportunity, a new precedent was potentially established. But second, a group called the Global Refugee-Led Network uh, issued their guidelines on meaningful refugee participation. So refugees themselves have been able to organize following a summit in September 2018 of about 75 refugee leaders from around the world, a series of regional consultations in the Asia-Pacific, uh, in Africa, in Europe, in the Middle East, North Africa region, that refugees themselves have said, what are the standards that they consider to be meaningful refugee participation? So we have a new precedent that a refugee can be part of a formal delegation, not an observer. And we have guidelines on the standards by which we can measure refugee participation going forward. So is there a potential for the process to be more inclusive when we have the next one of these meetings in four years' time? Absolutely. Is it inevitable that it will happen? No. What needs to happen is that we continue the momentum, not just the political will for there to be this representation, but to bring to bear the evidence that refugee participation is not just a good thing to do. It's it's not just sort of uh, uh, you know it, it it's not just uh, a, a, a morally attractive thing to do because it looks good, but that it's substantively a good thing to do. That involvement of refugees in a policy process makes for policy that is more um, that, that 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 that's more legitimate. And, and, and that's seen to be uh, more applicable. And so it might be more widely accepted by refugees themselves. So I'm quite hopeful that the small steps that we took in Geneva might lead to bigger change down the road. Yeah, these definitely all sounds like steps in the right direction for sure. Mm -hmm. well, that's, I'm, I'm hopeful. I've been working on refugee issues since the early 1990s, and, and, and it has become very clear to me lasting change takes time. And, you know... There are no gimmicks. So there, there's been a lot of effort to say, oh, this is the solution to the refugee problem. Uh, there was a, an, an editorial in the business section of the Globe and Mail a few months ago, and it said, if only Walmart and Costco uh, sold handicrafts made by refugees, that'll create business opportunities for refugees. That'll solve the problem. You know, the global refugee problem is not a problem of refugees. It's a problem of collective action. And so being able to facilitate the kind of cooperation and collaboration that's necessary, including collaboration with refugees to ensure protection and find solutions, it, it, it's a long-term endeavor. 
it, it, it's something that we've been able to do before. And I think there are these very tentative steps that suggest we're building towards a system that can do this kind of work more reliably and more effectively. Yeah, and definitely in terms of process, it seems like what happened at the forum is a step in the right direction. Um, but in terms of the actual benchmarks and policy goals, what what was the outcome here? Like, what that's that's out? a good question, and there there was no one outcome. So unlike the COP process within climate change, where there is a, a statement or a declaration that comes out that where there's an endorsement, or unlike a G7 meeting where there's a communique at the end, and you're able to look at that and say, well, that's what was accomplished. It wasn't so much the point of the Global Refugee Forum. So the, the purpose of the Global Refugee Forum was to bring together actors to make pledges. So there will be a follow-up meeting in December 2021 where those actors who made pledges in 2019 come back and say, what did they actually do? Right. So there's that kind of follow up. But it, it's a little bit like, you know, 20 years ago, you used to go to the mall and you'd see these posters. And if you squinted and stared through it, you saw the Mona Lisa. So if you kind of squint and you stare through all of the pledges that were made at the Global Refugee Forum, there's a bit of a picture that's there. And the picture that emerges is that new actors like the private sector, like civil society networks, like refugees themselves are beginning to assert themselves. But ultimately, it's the commitment of states that will make a difference, both in material terms and in policy terms. Is that commitment there? Well, there wasn't the level of erosion that we feared. And so the opportunity is there with some key state actors to begin to make process. So what, what was the outcome? The outcome was that there are conversations that have been started, there are commitments that have been made, there are ideas that have been moved forward. So it, it's not a, a, a clear yes, no, was there a good outcome? There were lots of outcomes. Does that mean that they've contributed to change? Only time will tell. One of the things with migration, I'm obviously on the outside when it comes to literature, is that it's so intimately tied to other issues, right? Like, yeah. I'm the son of immigrants. My parents came from Pakistan, uh, partially because of job opportunities, also because of violence. Um, things like war, political disorder, nowadays climate change, really salient issues. And while migration is a fundamental element of those issues and directly impacted by those issues, it tends to get shuffled aside. Mm. Um, but have we seen a greater consideration, particularly of these issues as it relates to migration? Has the spotlight been put on issues of migration? And yeah, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's critical. Um, so, uh, again, you know, not to sound like the crazy old man in the desert, but, you know, it wasn't always this way. Um, you know, when the refugee regime was established in the aftermath of World War II, it was established in response to 55 million people being displaced in Europe after as a result of World War II. And in the early days of the Cold War and the political imperatives of major states, but also at a time when issues of justice really prevailed and, you know, the, the, the never again sentiment was, uh, was enacted upon, you know, the age of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the like. But it was also a time where discussions on rights for refugees, protection and solutions for refugees was intimately tied to the Marshall Plan and the reconstruction of Europe, was tied to the, you know, the, the establishment of a stable European state system. So 
issues of refugees when the regime was created, it was always seen to be, you know, one of three legs on a stool. There was the the, the humanitarian human rights leg, there was the development leg, there was that peace and security leg, and all three of those pieces were in place to create a stable platform on which you built solutions. And through the end of the Cold War with the response to three million refugees fleeing Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia in uh, the late 80s with a response to displacement in Central America, where we have seen large scale responses to refugees that have been seen to be more or less effective it's where the, the humanitarian responses, the human rights responses, are coupled with development responses, are coupled with diplomatic and political responses. Through the 1990s, those were decoupled. And donors uh, in the global north sought to contain refugee issues in the global south. That humanitarian assistance, the setting up of these massive refugee camps, were seen to be a stopgap measure to contain the problem to provide basic life-saving assistance as a substitute for dealing with root causes in situations as complex and diverse as Somalia, Afghanistan, Liberia, elsewhere. So what we saw through the 90s and into the 2000s is that there was this emphasis on just providing humanitarian assistance. But then we realized that the average duration of a refugee situation was 20 years. Then we realized that the responses that we were implementing were causing additional problems for refugees in the states that host them. And so this is what led in, in, in the early 2000s and then certainly by 2015, 2016 to a rediscovery of what's called the nexus. The nexus of the humanitarian and the development, the nexus of the development and the peace building, and now what we call the triple nexus of bringing back together the humanitarian, the development, and the peace and security approaches. So something that was really central to what was adopted by the UN General Assembly in the New York Declaration in 2016 was this consensus around the needs, A, for responses to refugees to also include the needs of host communities, but also to recognize that responses to refugees can't be limited just to short-term humanitarian responses, that they need to be tied to longer-term thinking around development. So going back to your question, displacement issues are nested within a whole host of other issues. The institutional arrangements that we have the functioning of the refugee regime, the UN structure around agencies. UNHCR, the UN's refugee agency, has a non-political mandate. It's not allowed to engage with those deeper political issues around membership and citizenship. And there's been this long history of competition between UNHCR and other agencies within the UN system. So what we're trying to do now is to see how these connections, how these tensions can be overcome, how these gaps can be bridged. So the work that we're doing through through LEARN, through the Local Engagement Refugee Research Network uh, in, in Kenya, for example, is looking at uh, questions of the localization of humanitarian responses and how national NGOs, national communities, national development priorities speak to the kind of self-reliance opportunities that refugees are looking for. So, you know, in answer to your question, are they nested? Yes. 
do we recognize that? Very much so. I mean, my own research on the relationship between refugees and peace building show that the connections have been known for 20 years. There are political and institutional reasons why those connections are downplayed or why they aren't realized, why they aren't leveraged. Um, but it's part of the change that we're working to realize. Now, obviously, you have ample experience as an academic, also working with the civil society organizations directly. And there's that always that gap between pledges and action. In your experience, how can we hold policymakers to account? Because Canada, it's great they're taking the lead at this forum. You know, when it's time to meet up in two years, how can we ensure that they meet those benchmarks that they said they would? That's a, it, it, it's, it's, that's one of the questions that really motivated this community of partners to come together to form LEARN, the Local Engagement Refugee Research Network. So with a very generous support of a, of a seven-year partnership grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, what we've been able to do is bring together a community of researchers, of civil society actors, of refugee leaders, of NGOs from Canada and major refugee hosting countries in the global south, first and foremost with the goal of understanding and enhancing the role of civil society in the functioning of the refugee regime, to make sure that the voices of those actors closest to the everyday politics, to the realities of refugee situations, that their moral and expert authority can be amplified, that their experience can better inform policy discussions. But it also informs that question of implementation, that question of accountability. That governments that make pledges, it's very difficult for other governments to hold them to account. It's very difficult for UN agencies to hold them to account. For UNHCR, UNHCR is dependent on voluntary contributions for governments like Canada. It's dependent on cooperation with governments like Lebanon and Jordan and Kenya and Tanzania for access to its territory. And so civil society actors, national NGOs, refugee-led organizations, national academics are best placed to, first of all, inform policy discussions on what kinds of responses are most likely to lead to change. But also those policy communities, those communities of practice in major refugee hosting countries and major donor countries are the ones who are able to follow over time what their governments are doing. If, if we wait until two years hence for a meeting in Geneva to be able to say to governments, did you do what you said you were going to do? It's almost too late. That what we need to do is from the moment where a government makes a pledge that we say, that's, you know, that's great. How can we help you? And so with the government of Canada making this commitment to having refugee participation on their delegation, how can the research community, how can the NGO community, how can the civil society and community in Canada now say, how can we support you to make sure that this happens in reality? How do we help identify who those refugee leaders are? How do we offer training to emerging refugee leaders so that they have those, 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 those skills and, and, and the ability to engage with these opportunities when they are there? How do we connect those leaders with these institutional actors? But more so in countries like Tanzania and in Kenya and in Lebanon and in Jordan. 80% of the world's refugees are in the global south. But 92% of our published research on refugee issues comes from the global north. The voices that dominate discussions 
on refugee issues at the moment are voices from the global north. And so if we provide space, if we, in partnership, if in solidarity, we work with those actors in major refugee hosting countries who have the expertise, who have the knowledge, who have the networks, who have the insight, both to be able to track the often perilous gap between institutionalization and implementation, that perilous gap between a commitment made and action taken. If they can track that moment, but more than that, if, if those are the actors who can be bringing to bear in a powerful way an understanding of the everyday context in which this, this struggle for protection and solutions within four refugees, the context within which that struggle happens, the everyday politics, the, the minutiae, the granular realities, it's out of that authority, it's out of that knowledge that we're going to be able to better identify what are the examples of innovation that really work? What are the opportunities? Who are the power brokers? Who are the stakeholders that can be brought into the conversation to create space where change can be realized? So I'm a firm believer that it needs to be less of voices like mine and more of the voices of our partners who are leaders of refugee-led initiatives, leaders of national NGOs, national academics who've lived and worked and, and toiled in these environments for decades. So that's what we're trying to do, is to create ways to enhance their impact, to amplify their voices, to bring their perspectives into this global conversation, not only in answer to your question, to track implementation, but to help set the agenda. It goes back to your early question about what does a participatory process look like? But who are the actors who need to be sitting at the table when the agenda for the meeting is being set? Not just sitting at the table where we all applaud ourselves for the decisions that we've taken. One area that I'm really interested in is the political context, you know, outside of policymaking. And we're in a strange time right mm. now with the resurgence of populism and nativism politics in much of the global north. Unfortunately, this is also, also intimately tied to migration in some ways, usually through the really negative nationalistic rhetoric that's really become commonplace um, in much of the politics in the global north. You know, I'm thinking United States for the mm. example. You can see how this is translated into policy, the tightening of borders, slashing mm -hmm. of budgets, and you know, just say rather painful policy mm -hmm. choices. Um, how have NGOs and civil society organizations and academics, how, how have they risen to meet this challenge? I don't know that we have risen to meet the challenge. I think we're, we're, we're trying to. Um, and I would just, I'd qualify uh, the question by saying we're most aware of how these dynamics play out in the global north, but they're certainly present in the global south as well. You know, the, the decision by the government of Tanzania uh, in February 2018 2017, sorry, I'm an old man, I forget my date sometimes. But in uh, the government decision of the government of Tanzania to withdraw from the UN's comprehensive refugee response framework was uh, very much in response to uh, a, a, a national leadership that had a, a, a Tanzania first policy, sort of the, the, you know, the narrative of 
uh, not being subject to uh, ideas from global actors and and so the, the, this this notion of sort of the the mistrust of globalization the mistrust of of global actors the uh, the notion of you know the domestic first uh, this is something that plays itself out you know uh, around the world and it manifests itself in different ways but it's certainly present around the world so how do we respond to that I think there are several ways. First and foremost is is to recognize that this is not new, right? It, it, it's 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 arguably more uh, it's arguably more persuasive. It's obvious. It's it's arguably more uh, more painful now because of the human consequences, the the dramatic reduction. Uh, the The United States used to resettle somewhere in the area of a hundred thousand refugees every year. Um, and, and this year we'll be very lucky if they resettle 12,000, right? So that means that there are 88,000 refugees who would have found a solution who now won't. And so not to downplay the immediate human costs of, of these policy choices, but to recognize that there are moments where we face these kinds of, of, of policy constraints and these political currents that we faced them before and, and how have we responded in the past. Um, we've responded through um, through alternate political leadership. You know the fact that um, that there are leaders. You know a, a lot has been made of Angela Merkel and sort of her position, despite domestic electoral cost. Um, much has been made of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in being uh, willing to continue to support the the rights of refugees, notwithstanding the potential for that complicating relationships with the United States. But political leadership on its own, we can't rely on that. Um, there is a need to understand what drives populism, what, what drives popular subscription to these restrictive policies. Um, is it the notion that there's a lack of information? Arguably that there have been these echo chambers created of competing news sources and that we turn to the news source in which we find most comfort. We don't like being challenged by the news that we receive. But I, there is, um, you know, a belief that uh, policy actors uh, are still able to bring policy options that are based on evidence. And so if there are anxieties in terms of economic, you know, changes in structures of economies, uh, in terms of sectors of society who are left behind by, um, you know, forces of, you know, economic change, if there are anxieties that derive from, uh, migration patterns in terms of you know changing demographics. These are all issues that we've dealt with before, and and I think that what we need to avoid doing, certainly from a research community, is to dismiss those anxieties as being baseless. Right? That is something that we've learnt in in the last uh, election campaign in the United States, is that um, simply dismissing those who support these views as being unworthy of dialogue, uh, that we actually reinforce the agenda of, uh, of, of, of those who seek to inflame populist sentiments. So the question is, what can we do is that we engage in a long-term discussion of what are the public policy concerns and priorities that arise from or that lead to displacement? How can we better respond to those? 
how do we demonstrate the value of the alternative? So uh, going back to your earlier question about what was the result of the Global Refugee Forum, and I made image to, you know, I compared it to a poster in a shopping mall uh, of an abstract uh, rendition of the Mona Lisa. You know, that plays very much into those who would dismiss the value of collective action and multilateralism and say you have these massive jamborees in Geneva that don't achieve anything. So part of the, I think, responsibility of those of us who work on issues of collective action is to be able to demonstrate how collective action, how collaboration is a better alternative to drawing up the drawbridges and sharpening the swords. And that isolationism is proven to be incapable of responding to these shared problems. And so appealing to the interests of publics to be able to say that collective action is going to give us more reliable results, it's going to give us more efficient results, and that it's better for everyone in the long run. Parallel to that is how to engage in public discourse around these issues. And I think that's something that certainly I'm learning, and I think many in the refugee research community are learning, how to do that interview on a radio station where the editorial position of the interviewer is already going to be clear from the outset. How to create spaces for dialogue for those who don't share your understanding of the points of departure in the conversation. It remains a work in progress. But I would repeat that it's not just something that we're learning to try and do better in the global north. It's something we're also trying to do in the global south. It's another reason why the way LEARN is structured with working groups in Kenya, Tanzania, Lebanon, and Jordan, how important it is that it's not the Canadian partners that set the agenda in the countries where we work. It's our national partners that set the agenda. So it doesn't subject them to accusations that they are implementing the will of outside actors that by responding by by through these 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 partnerships where we're able to provide support and solidarity and to help build the capacity of partners who work in these contexts those are the actors who are going to be able to counter narratives in their context not me coming into their context and try and counter the the narrative that's takes place within their political community You've mentioned like, a great deal of the work that you've done with LEARN. I'm also interested to hear what else have you been working on? What else is on the pipeline for Dr. James? Um, well, the work with LEARN, and, and it, I mean, so LEARN uh, launched in, in 2018. Uh, it's been a real privilege to be the project director for LEARN. With the first year and a half of LEARN, it's been a lot of work to get our programs up and running to, to, to help establish our working groups in our country, in the four countries, to be able to create the mechanisms to identify students, to go and conduct sub-projects and run our training activities. It hasn't left a lot of time for my own research in the last 18 months, but what it has done, it has confirmed that the questions that I want to be working on in the next five years are even more important than perhaps I realized. My own work is focused on the politics of asylum in the global south in political communities like Tanzania and Kenya. Um, having the real opportunity to work with partners in Lebanon and Jordan makes me realize that there are questions of national politics and everyday politics that are equally relevant in other contexts outside of geographically where I've worked before. Another strain of my work is on the politics of the refugee regime and the experience of the Global Refugee Forum has made it clear 
that everyday politics just doesn't happen in these everyday realities within the global south. Everyday politics is happening right now in this interview. Everyday politics happens at the Global Refugee Forum in terms of who sets the agenda, who's able to speak. So it really speaks to my interest in taking the work that I've done on everyday politics in very specific contexts and ask about how these questions of power, uh, these questions of agency, these questions of, of gatekeepers in processes, how do these actually replicate themselves in contexts wherever there's an effort to manifest or bring into being the actors, the institutions of the global refugee regime, regardless of the context where that happens. So in terms of my own work, I remain very interested and in, uh, there's so many more questions to ask around the politics of the refugee regime and unpacking and understanding the political environment within which we pursue protection and solutions with and for refugees, regardless of where geographically that context might be. So these are questions that continue to preoccupy me. They're also questions that continue to excite me. And not just my work, but the work of graduate students that I'm working with who are working on, you know, the politics of Canada's refugee resettlement policy and how division of labor between governments and community partners happen. Graduate students who are looking at, you know, the evolution of refugee policy in Kenya and sort of the diversification across locations within Kenya or, you know, graduate students working on the implementation of global commitments to the protection of refugee women in different contexts in, in South and Southeast Asia. I see myself as part of this vibrant and growing community of scholars at Carleton, in Ottawa, in Canada, globally, that recognize that we've only begun to figure out the questions that need to be answered. We've only just begun to figure out the way in which we can answer those questions in a principled and partnered and collaborative way that speaks back to your question about what does an inclusive process look like. That equally applies to the research cycle. But then what a privilege it is to be able to be doing this research at Carleton, in Ottawa, in Canada, but as part of a community of scholars around the world who still believe that research matters, that evidence and, and, and research and the results of research, that knowledge can still be used to solve very real problems. And for more than 25 years, the problem that's preoccupied me is why is it that refugees are not able to claim the rights and find the solution that we promised them in the 1950s. And so that's going to continue to animate my work both intellectually in understanding issues of power and politics and governance, but in taking that knowledge and in translating that knowledge and in mobilizing that knowledge to realize the change that I believe is possible. It's important work really important. I, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk about it. This is actually, this has been inspirational. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore poli sci, on Instagram at CU underscore poli dot sci, and on Facebook at carltonu.polysci.